the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot of information that we Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. The path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot of information that we can Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is a term you hear a lot these days. It powers Siri and Alexa, helps doctors detect diseases, and even helps people find love in the case of dating apps. But in the process of doing all those good things, it's also gathering very personal information about you. It's sharing that information, and it's making decisions and assumptions about you. This has huge implications for personal privacy, social justice, and individual freedom, even national security. Yet there's no uniform global set of ethical standards around this transformative technology. Facebook was called out a few years ago for using AI to monitor people's posts for suicidal content and evaluate their mental states. In China, classroom cameras and AI monitor children's attention to gauge their interest and aptitude for certain subjects. So should we be worried? We're diving into the importance of ethics and AI and how we can all be better informed with today's boss babe joining us all the way from London, England, Tanya Duarte with the public awareness and education group, We and AI. Welcome, Tanya. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much. That was a great intro. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. We're so delighted to have you. And before we get into some of these difficult questions, we would love for you to share a little bit about your background and how you came to We and AI. Thank you. So I've been in industry one way or the other for 30 years now, uh, but a lot of that has been in marketing, in business consultancy, um, and I've always been really interested in innovation throughout that. The last four years, I ended up working uh, after working with some tech startups for a business magazine and business events company. We were looking at disruptive technology. It's called disruption and disruptive business models, uh, basically emerging technologies. And we started off four years ago on the journey of educating innovation leaders about AI, how they should implement AI in their business for better business efficiency and et cetera, et cetera. And during that journey, I started to uncover more and more things which were making me uncomfortable. And I think after however many years working in business and, and also working in marketing, I was also starting to feel like, was was I on the right side of, of, of history in, in kind of incentivizing people to, to rush ahead with with technology almost sometimes for technology's sake? Um, and I just got to the stage of my life where I felt in, incredibly impassioned to do something about it and the tipping point for me was learning about some of the gender case studies where AI has 
really amplified bias against women. Of course, since then, I've learned that that's just the tip of the iceberg. But that was the bit that after however many years on this planet, feeling that and hoping that we were going the right in the right direction in terms of uh, equality for women, then suddenly realizing that it can all be rolled back in an instant, really, really quickly, and nobody seemed to know about it. And that was a massive wake up call for me. So yeah, I quit my quit my job six months notice and started thinking about setting up a not-for-profit to, to see how I could use those marketing skills, use my background in communications to, to help spread awareness about some of the issues around AI. Well, first of all, kudos to you for having the courage to see something that concerned you and actually make a major career shift to do something about it and to be an activist. So if you would just sort of define for our listeners what AI is on kind of a high level, because I think we all have sort of an idea, you know, that it's our smart devices or whatever. But um, if, if you could just provide us with sort of a definition of what it is that we're talking about here when we're referencing AI. That's such a good question. And the more expert one gets in AI, I think the harder one finds this question to answer. I wouldn't put myself in the expert category, but certainly if you ever ask uh, uh, someone who's creating it, they, they'll spend about an hour telling you what it's not. Um, so I think to try and make it as simple as possible, we define it as not just artificial um, in, intelligence, but, but also anything that uses big data in a way that is too complex for people to use. So it's kind of data-driven technologies, artificial intelligence, basically machines, programs working in a way that, that is beyond, is, is so complex with so many inputs that it's beyond the power of a human to, to do it. Um, that's a very layman's term <laughs> way of describing it, but I think that's important because it can be it, you, you can start getting into definitions of, you know, kind of neural networks and deep learning. And, and I think that and some people also get very hung up on what's real AI and what's just automation, what's just, um, you know, what, what's just algorithms. What, what's and, and to some extent, I think it doesn't matter too much. Um, it matters if you're using it for a marketing campaign and you're trying to hoodwink people um, over what you're selling them. But in terms of, of us understanding what AI is, I think it's more important to think about the, the fact that it's about big data and about models that are, are using it in a mathematical, statistical way and what, what implication that has. Um, I, I think it's much more important to think about the implications. Can you share with us some examples of how people currently experience AI um, and potential ethical vulnerabilities uh, that they may be exposed to? So I think before I do that, I do also want to say that not, I'm not don't in any way want to come across as, as a kind of technophobe or, or someone who, who is anti-tech, because I think for a lot of people in order to understand AI, more, which is definitely the aim of, of we and AI, you actually need to understand the good things as well. Because otherwise, you just think, why are we doing this, right? I mean, it's just, and people get scared. And there's this whole kind of thread going on about computers are going to, you know, robots mm -hmm. are going to steal our jobs and the technical singularity. And, 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 and it, I think if people are coming from a position of fear, then they're not engaging. And what we really want is for people to engage with 
being part of saying what kind of an AI future that we want, um, you know, what's good, what's not. So I would preface this by saying um, that there are lots of vulnerabilities, as you exactly. allude to, but it, it's in the context of developing technologies that are huge. You have a huge potential to to really deliver, you know, a lot of transformational and positive change. However, yes, on the way there, um, it relies on a lot of data and a lot of modeling. And the problem is data often um, is not necessarily as representative as it should be. And models are not always made um, as kind of with enough thought about the data as they should be. And sometimes the whole project is flawed from its very conception, because as humans, we're flawed, and we have data that is biased, and we are biased. So all of these things together um, have led to some case studies. Some of them you, you, you mentioned at, at the beginning of your intro, um, but kind of quite topical ones, I think now are when um, airports were scanning, um, scanning people with basically to take your temperature to check if you had COVID or not. So you had to hold a, a handheld thermometer and images of people holding these handheld thermometers uh, it were being flagged by machine learning, so by computer vision. If it was a white hand uh, you, you, holding a thermometer, it was flagged as a thermometer or a kind of digital device. If it was a black hand holding the thermometer, or a dark-skinned hand, it was being flagged as a gun. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So wow. this is the kind of thing that I mean, that the machine basically learns to interpret images or interpret data based on the other sets of data that it has, and it, it draws correlations. It, 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 it teaches itself to make connections. So in the same way that... Uh, it, there was a program that was just flagging dogs. So it was identifying dogs with computer vision. Um, but some of the dogs were actually wolves on snowy backgrounds, which meant that some dogs, if they had snow behind them, were being identified as wolves, not dogs. So what the, the, the machine is doing is learning from the context and, and drawing its own conclusions. Snow means wolf, as opposed to thinking necessarily about the features of a dog and how that differs from a wolf. And it's this kind of noise and, and lack of our ability to say, to, to correct in some cases until it's too late. So in some, in these instances, well, it's obvious, isn't it? We can look at that and say, that's not a gun. Um, but if it's being used in systems where there isn't anyone overseeing that or there isn't anyone flagging that, then it's being it, it's making decisions. And this is what happens in more hidden systems that, than with computer vision. So, for example, in recruitment, um, there's been lots of case studies on recruitment platforms, learning what what people get, what jobs and trying to optimize uh, candidates for, for employers based on previous successful candidates. Well, using historic data, which is always a big problem, often women aren't show, shown high paid jobs. Historically, they don't have them. So why would you show them? But then, of course, that's where the amplification comes in, because then guess what? You don't get women applying for them. In those situations, it's very hard to see. If you didn't get shown that job ad, you don't know you didn't get shown that job ad, right? So it's quite, it's, it's invisible. It's wow. really difficult to then to know that you're being discriminated against. And, and that's why part of our mission is to make the invisible visible. Um, and, and there are two issues with facial recognition 
um, in this context, in, in the context of race, which is one of which is a lot of the reasons people complain about it is it because it has a very, very high false positive rate for um, BAME, BAME people, for, for, for people who are darker skinned, the computer cannot get good matches very well. So I think up to 98% false positives or something. But also, um, there's a wider issue over facial recognition, which is actually how it's being implemented in the first place. So I think some of the concern is over that the, the false, you know, that the accuracy and some of the concern is over what kind of neighbourhoods it's being used to police and, and how police are using it as part of a bigger systemic justice system. I, I actually have a quick follow-up question. Well, maybe it's not a quick answer, but I'd love to know, and I'm sure our audience too, obviously you have these computer systems that are searching the internet, research, and that informs how they, the AI works. How do humans come into this? Uh, how, do, how does the human component come into it? And just when you mentioned the, the dark hand and the thermometer and that it automatically recognizes that as a gun, is that the research that the computer's pulling from the internet or is that actually a, a human putting that into the computer's quote-unquote brain? Basically, yes, there are um, humans involved certainly over, over supervised learning, where they, they basically grade the AI. <laughs> and it's a big job. There's kind of whole farms of people um, out often earning very little money, looking at really kind of <laughs> dull images sometimes, just kind of saying yes, no. And I think the human, the human element in, in training AIs is not widely recognised that you do need armies of, of people. Um, there's also, again, slightly contentious ways in which all of us are training AI sometimes without, without knowing. Yes, let's um, get into that. We talk about yeah. we talk about captcha a lot, which right. I Susan the one that brought that to my attention one day. We were talking, she's like, Yeah, we're teaching these computers. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, Yeah, you know the pictures where you're like, okay, pick up the you know, out of this sequence of picture uh, of the picture is basically broken up into squares. Um, what pieces are traffic light and what pieces aren't? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're training computers. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. yeah. I, I thought I thought I was helping the world be really safe and secure and, <laughs> right. and, 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 and uh, not, not allow a bot, but actually I'm training bots um yeah i find those i find those tests really hard and the reason they're quite hard is is because we're trying to show uh, a, a a robot uh, i think um or a, you know a machine um in what different circumstances a traffic light could not look like a traffic light but is a traffic light and it needs humans to do that because that's really tricky right i mean how many times have you seen the ones where they're kind of road signs and you have to look at it <laughs> you have to look at it twice so so yeah that is the kind of way where we're, we're, we're training we're, we're training machines. Another way is with voice recognition. Um, so there's been a few scandals over this where, you know, we've been told that, that, that voice recognition, um, that, you know, that, that Alexa's not listening in um, to everything we say, only when there's the wake word, but then there's stories that, that, that in actual fact, um, in order for Alexa to, for, for, for the researchers to know that Alexa is understanding things correctly, they have to listen too. They, they have to listen. Um, so whether it's around the wake word or, or, or not, if they're not checking that Alexa is understanding us, they can't make Alexa better. So on the one hand, you're like, well, you know, me personally, I definitely want Alexa to get better because the number of times I come up with absolute 
you know, absolute junk in response to what <laughs> I just said. <laughs> and I think it's okay. The machines are not taking over anytime soon. I just asked uh, for a certain song and instead I got a recipe to something very <laughs> random. You know. So on one respect, we kind of want it to get better. But on, on the other, you know, it's very important that we're aware um, of, of exactly when humans are involved um so as much as it's important for, for us to know when machines are involved it's also important for us to know when machine when humans are listening in as well well and it's interesting that you're talking about bots because i literally just listened to another podcast this morning where they were talking about um artificial intelligence and how bots are getting are being trained to be smarter to listen for voice inflection to um be able to serve people better in a customer service sort of role, but also over time as their voices become more normal and human sounding and as human avatars start to look more realistic and are associated with a bot, at what point is it unethical to know, not know really whether you're talking to a real person or a robot. And how do you come up with a uniform system for AI ethics? Oh, that's that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Or, or trillion dollar, probably. Um, it, it is, there are 160 different f- frameworks that have been produced by some amazing bodies, whether it's um, the IEEE standards or, you know, international bodies. Um, there, there are so many done by the big tech companies who are working really hard in this area. Quite often, it's very easy to to blame big tech for everything and call for greater regulation. Um, but actually, I, I think quite often, some of the people most involved in technology are those that, that want the greatest amount of clarity on what they're allowed to do, because they are aware of the power that they have and don't need some help with it, basically. I think the there is some step forwards in international because the other thing is it has to be uh, ultimately the best way we're going to ground this is internationally, which is very difficult. In you gave a case study at the beginning of, of uses in China and 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 how things differ across the world, so it's a very hard thing to get international agreement on. But there are some moves forward. That there's recently been a global partnership on AI announced uh, with the EU, Britain, Canada, the US, various countries are are coming together to try and get some standards. But there's also everyone's own geographical um, regulations and and rules as well uh, that, that, that I know people are lobbying. But I think a lot of the time, not enough people know enough to actually inform the policymakers and often the policymakers don't know enough. <laughs> uh, so it, it's why we really want to try and bring the voice of the public in. And very importantly, when we say the public, we don't, we mean the business people as people, as citizens working in organisations as well. So whether you work in a tech company or you work in a business that uses technology, you 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 also are of parent, uh, you also use the healthcare system. You live in certain neighbourhoods, and these issues affect us all. Not only do we have a, a right to get involved in discussions about tech, which is really difficult because you always feel like it's going to go over your head, or, or, or that you know you need to be some kind of super smart geek. But actually, no. It's about it's a, technology is is actually all about human input and human outcomes. Uh, so it, not only do you have that right to get involved, you have a responsibility 
because it's it really is going to be our future AI particularly. Um, and, and everyone has that responsibility to try and put pressure, whether it's internal pressure at business in, in the business you work for, or whether it's asking questions of businesses, a consumer, or whether it's getting involved in, in politics or helping out with groups representing underrepresented people who, who, who may have their data rights being eroded. I, I kind of feel everyone's got the responsibility to at least know how how it affects them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question. When we initially spoke to you about uh, being a guest on our podcast, um, you gave a shout out to Canada for the strides they're making in AI ethics. Um, can you highlight some of those uh, things that they're doing uh, to bring awareness to AI ethics and uh, what we can learn from them in their progression? Well, I think Canada has always been as a as a nation has has always taken AI quite seriously, um, and I think out of that there's a really busy ecosystem in developing AI in general, um, and the Montreal Ethics Institute has been re- you know at the forefront of looking at the ethics side of that. Um, but there are also lots of people looking at different ways of design thinking, for example, how you actually design services and products to, to think about ethics at the beginning rather than go oops at the end. I was thinking, yeah, that it seems like this needs to start to some degree at the education level. The people who are writing the algorithms, who are being trained as software engineers, have to have not just programming understanding, but they have to have ethics training as well, right? To, to at least know that they should be questioning their assumptions. And is that happening? I think it's not happening nearly as much as it should be happening. Um, we've, seen, we've seen the power of in, employee activism and employee kind of, yeah, just engagement and involvement with some of the changes that are happening in some tech companies at the moment. I mean, Facebook employees are obviously being very very active at the moment. Um, so it doesn't have to start at the top, but what would be great is if at the top there was an ethics committee, there was ethics policies. Uh, lots of companies have these. They'll have their principles, their ethical principles. What is often missing is the gap between those ethical principles, which you know look great, sound great, but there's not the infrastructure or the processes in place to explain to people who are actually not just developing, but, but, but researching, planning, designing, implementing, what do they mean in practice? And it takes support because if what you're doing is slowing down the process, if you can deliver something quickly that hasn't had to be thought about by lots more people, that hasn't had to be, you know, kind of de-biased and different data sets and remodeled, then the commercial pressure is always going to be to, to ship quickly. And that that is one of the problems that we have in tech at the moment, is that it happens so fast. But then obviously while you're doing that, it's very difficult to find the space and the mandate to 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 be thinking about you know, ethical principles. And so in order to get big change happening within companies, we need to show that there is either a compliance risk and companies are going to lose money that way by fines or um, there's going to, or, or there's a, a reputational risk. So, so a lot of these case studies we've talked about break, you know, kind of international conventions on human rights, but, or, you know, kind of anti-discrimination. But there's very little also record, certainly in the UK, when that happens, partly because people don't know it's happening, uh, but partly because it's just not 
it's just not very easy to, to do anything about it. So while compliance is not that much of a risk, we need to encourage people to make it more of a risk by pushing for the legislation you talked about earlier, more appropriate um, legislation to, to the types of technology uses now. But we also need to be acting as as consumers in terms of showing companies what's going to get them business and what's not going to get them business. So I think we've got to look to ourselves. So yes, we've been conditioned to consume goods in certain ways. It would be from a tech point of view, you know, we don't like too many we don't like to read terms and conditions. We don't like to <laughs> we don't like to have to click too many buttons when we're using a, a product. Um, we like it to be seamless. We like it to be personalized. We like it to to work really efficiently. But I think we also have to think about what the what the implications of that are and how we how we behave and take some responsibility. Yeah. You know, this animal has so many different tentacles to it. Um, And I think you make a really good point because when you talk about legislation being a solution to this, I don't see how that's possible because the legislative process is like a cement shoe and the technology is evolving at a pace that's like a running shoe, mm-hmm. right? And it's there, you're trying to put the cement shoe on one foot and the running shoe on the other <laughs> foot, you know, and it's just yeah. not going to happen. So in, in my mind, it has to be either liability driven and, and making companies really understand because they are charged primarily with answering to their share, shareholders. So making them understand the liabilities and then also market driven to your point, Tanya, um, consumers have to step up to the plate and, just take the time to say, wait a minute, why do I have to complete the CAPTCHA in order to use your, your website or whatever? You know, like it's hard to know where to begin as a consumer. And so that would be my next question to you is what are some practical steps that the everyday person can take to get involved in this issue, both to educate themselves and then also to have a voice? Sure. I think this is obviously very close to, to my heart. It's what we're hoping to, to be able to give people more routes to get involved. Um, And I think the first step really is just learning a little bit more about AI. And and I think what we've seen with people and what people have been learning through the, the recent questioning of systemic racism is a really good example of, of, of stepping from that place of thinking, well, I'm not racist, that's good enough to thinking, actually, I need to do a bit more. And I think if we think about that, not just what we think about that across all elements of our lives, you know, not only are we not doing any harm, but but what what good can we do? How can we think about how other people other than ourselves are being affected? I think that's the first step is, is kind of a, a, a bit of a mind change. And for me, I, I'm a classic example. And, and maybe this is why it hit me so hard. Of You know, I've always loved technology. I love the personalization, right? If I get an ad following me around the internet, if, if it's for something that's relevant to me, if it's like something really cool that actually I might really like, I'm going to want that ad much more than if it's for something completely boring and of no interest to me. So for me, I've, I've, I went through a phase of like, hey, have you know much data as you want because make it work for me. But what I wasn't seeing at that time 
was, well, that's fine for me because I know how this works. I know why that ads follow me around the internet. I know that, the, you know, cookies are basically working out that, you know, on my computer are working out my journey and what my preferences are, etc. So just that bit of knowledge means that I can resist a little bit more because I know that I'm the subject of a campaign. <laughs> and I think that's a big step forward. Secondly, I'm privileged enough that if I do go and buy whatever it is, I'm unlikely to get myself in, you know, real dire financial straits. Whereas if A, you're kind of, you're more having to be more careful with your money to, and also B, you're not aware it's happening. It's very easy to be preyed upon. So that was a big, when I realized that some people, you know, getting into debt or, or, or thinking it's serendipity that they should buy this, this, this special dress, because it's like, it's a sign, it's following them around, because they're not seeing how they're being manipulated. So I think the first step is to understand how you might be manipulated, um, and then make other people um, aware of that. And some people as a result may choose to turn off their cookies. So you know, you can go to your settings, it means that the websites you go to can't see what other sites you're going to, what your history is, you know, what kind of person you are. Some people may well choose to to do that. You know, as I said, me personally, I won't. But I think most people don't know that's that's an option. Um, so small things like that. I think another thing is when we use social media is being just critical and questions, questioning a little bit some of the things that we see. So deep fakes, for example. So this is when um, we can now create, we can create images and sounds of people that look like it's them and it's not them. And you cannot tell what's a real person, what's not. You, there's been horrible cases of, of people using deep fake to, to, you know, put people's faces into porn videos and you cannot tell it's not that person and using it aggressively. Now, these things only work if people are viewing them. They only work if we're sharing them, if we're kind of giving them breathing space. So I think it's also about being quite critical and conscious. And before you press that share button, thinking about how ethical things are, it's very easy. You see a story. I mean, the other thing is the whole kind of fake news and curated news and ending up in an echo chamber where your, your news is only coming from one source is maybe questioning that and stepping out, you know, have I got a balanced point of a balanced point of view here. And then the gimmicks that we often see on social media. So uh, little stories like, you know, AI that can tell if you're gay or not, you know, um, which is hugely um, contentious. Uh, lots of people would argue not, you know, not actually correct. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's not, it doesn't work, but it's the kind of thing people, you know, kind of like, hey, this is a cool new thing. Let's share it. And and we understand the motivation there. So it's just having that questioning um, mind. And then in, if for people that work in, in businesses, um, I think it's about asking questions. Well, for everybody, it's asking questions, questioning things. In businesses, it's asking the small questions such as, well, have we got an ethics principles if you have then questions such as well what does that mean when I'm planning this so the, the kind of small questions um the small questions are good but but at some point also maybe the big questions like should we even be building this um and and that takes a lot of confidence but it's kind of building up to that and that takes a bit of education in the same way that 
we're seeing people now who are educating themselves on um, you know, kind of black history that that previously had not thought that it applies to them. Again, I say this is this is a great thing, and also we need to be doing it for for for, for lots of different interest groups. You know, how does this how does this product that I'm using work for people with disabilities? How does this product I'm creating work for people who have accessibility issues? Let's ask the question. Hey, everybody, Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. Tanya, you bring up several great points. Mm-hmm. The common thread being that we all need to hold ourselves account- accountable to a higher standard and not just ourselves, but our employers, our family members, our friends. And if mm-hmm. we want to see change, we need to be part of that change. Um, and sometimes asking those questions, it's hard. It's hard being the person in the room, being the squeaky wheel. <laughs> I'm usually that person um, being very like squeaky, but uh, I, I've always been a question asker and I've always been like a, you know, standing up for the little guy or saying, Hey, this doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you will get the people that look over at you. Like you have a third <laughs> eyeball or uh, you know, maybe they're looking at you like I was thinking the same thing, but they just don't have the voice to do it. So it's hard being that person, but it's so needed. And I think that the more and more I have, I soon I talk about this a lot that I have faith in the next generation. This young generation has such a beautiful voice. Like they stand up to things. And I hope that we continue to see that. Mm-hmm. And I also think there's a, a certain element of honestly laziness, right? It, there's this, or maybe, maybe the better word is overwhelm. Like, People feel overwhelmed by their technology. The reason we don't know about how to turn off cookies on our computers and our phones is because we're so busy or we feel so busy and those things aren't easy and intuitive to do. And so we don't take the time to stop and figure it out. And our inaction is our complicity then, right? Mm-hmm. In in yeah. creating this ecosystem where a few who understand the AI are designing it in a way that whether intentionally or non-intentionally, probably a combination of both, we're coming up with algorithms that are biased and systems that ultimately will bite us all. So we can't afford to be complacent, you know, lazy or whatever the word is. We can't afford that. Yeah, I, I agree. And and uh, on the bias issue, I mean, that's another really important thing we we can't afford to do is not question diversity within the industries that we're in and technology. I mean, I think, you know, I haven't said much about that, but it is one of the most important things. It's why a a lot of bias creeps in is because if we're all sitting around a table and we all have the same experiences, it's very difficult to think about how things might affect other people. So the more diverse people you can get in a room, the the better your thinking, your critical thinking becomes and the easier it becomes to ask those questions collectively. So I think that it's 
definitely a, a challenge for everybody is to think about, am I doing enough to encourage diversity in, in the workplace and, and in tech, particularly, um, you know, when we come to AI. Amen. I think that is a great, great point. And we talk about diversity and inclusion a lot on this show. And you're right. Like if you, that's a good practical step that I think businesses can take, right, is really looking for diverse teams to come in when they're designing their products, because that's when they'll get those viewpoints that they may not think of on their own. So to me, that's just, that's a great takeaway for any business owners who are mm-hmm. uh, HR departments who are listening right now. Well, even, you know, if we're talking about market share, if that's, sadly, if that's the only thing they're looking at, I mean, if you have a, like a diverse group of people working on a product or a service, I mean, you're going to attract a, a wider group of consumers. So, mm-hmm. why, I mean, that just in my head is pragmatic and makes sense. I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and actually, one of the challenges that we have is in, in talking about AI bias, particularly, is that we get very hung up on the fairness issue for obvious reasons. It's very close to our heart. But actually, we should be talking more about the fact that do you want to make a robust product that does the job it's meant to do. Because when you start getting errors and bias, they're not necessarily just, you know, gender bias or racial bias. What it's saying is you are treating one group of people um, incorrect. You're incorrectly weighting something here. This is not a robust model. Therefore, your product is not as good as it should be. Um, And and so it becomes a business, you know, it it should become a business issue. I I mean, I feel like we could continue talking about this for hours and hours. It's one of those things, like the tentacles, as Sue was saying earlier. I mean, we really could. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, this is a fantastic conversation. I think that... um, to be respectful of your time and because there's no way we're going to be able to solve all this today. (laughs) We'll go ahead and jump into our lightning round, Tanya. And these are questions and just thoughts that we ask all of our guests to share so that we can get to know them on a more personal level. And uh, so I will start us out by asking you to finish this sentence. Women are diverse. I find it difficult sometimes when women get grouped in any way. So I think it's really important to say that uh, we are all have the ability to contribute um, and behave and achieve so many diverse things that I found that quite difficult to to pin down to one word other than to say diverse. We 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 have you can't limit us. I think that's beautifully said. Unlimited. <laughs> <laughs> what are three pieces of advice you'd give your younger self? So this. This, this one hurt a little bit, uh, and I'm probably thinking of my much younger self in my 20s, um, early 20s particularly, I think, when I worked very, very hard in, in a quite macho, male-dominated um, and rather kind of old-school environment. Um, and I, I think don't seek validation from others would come into it. So I think I, I was doing a lot of things because I was really seeking external validation. And what I've learned over the years is that that gets you mm-hmm. nowhere. Um, made me a bit of money, to be fair, to start, you know, in, in my early 20s. So, you know, but, but that, that, that really, from a kind of personal, um, yeah, personal development point of view, wasn't good. Um, I think, secondly, um, related to that is also don't judge others. 
because when I got sucked into that whole arena, I remember, it, I, I, I hate to say this, and it, it does hurt. I remember, for example, seeing women who were pregnant, who had kids leaving work early. And, and you know, we had this horribly toxic work culture in, in, in my early 20s. And I'd be like, you know, that's outrageous. They're not, you know, they're, they're kind of like, oh, they're always, oh, yeah, morning sickness again. And that was because I was in that kind of culture, but it encouraged judgmentalism. And, and um, now I see, you know, or oh, so-and-so is not working hard enough and you don't think about what's going on in their lives. And I think you mentioned the younger generation now, and I think that is what's so beautiful now is that doesn't happen um, mm-hmm. so much. And, and, and I hope that lots of people aren't having to learn that now, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's just part mm-hmm. of who they are. Um, but then also part of that judgmentalism and, and, you know, seeking validation was because I was being very hard on myself. So I was kind of expecting life to be hard, you know, not everyone to work hard. And, and I think be kind to yourself is my final, my third kind of lesson, because I think part of it was about actually just allowing failure or, you know, kind of human, human, humanness, you know, not having to think about being a machine or always right, or to just to relax a little bit and be kind to your own achievements, which helps you to be kinder to other people um, as well. A hundred percent. And I think that, you know, those toxic mentalities like um, being judgmental and looking for outside validation, they always end up pitting women against women. Have you noticed that? And, and so, yes. Yes. good point. You know? Good point. Because you need a good group of mentors and you need your tribe, mm. but you should have confidence in yourself. Because even though you're getting those weird looks sometimes, again, the third eyeball, like you could just be that person in the room that that's the only one saying it out loud, you know? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I love that. I do too. Okay. What is your current favorite application of tech for good? Well, this, I love this question because just this morning uh, we had a group of five students from University of London who've done a little research project on us on AI for good case studies come and introduce me to a brand new one so this is really is a very current new favorite um, and I'd yeah, love to give them a, a big shout out for the work that they've done completely new to AI and, and helping us to, to kind of understand how how students perceive AI. Um, and one they picked out was, um, as part of the project, was Pulse Lab Kampala, which is a Ugandan um, UN interagency initiative. Um, and in Uganda, the half, at least half of households have radio, local radios, their primary source of information. Um, and what this project did was use, basically use voice recognition to listen in to I think 25,000 Ugandans phone into their local radio station a day and kind of chat on it, which is amazing. And, and the voice recognition listens to all the conversations that are had. So they're public conversations. It's, you know, they know it's on, it's on radio. Um, and from that, pick up, translate and pick up key themes that are being talked about. And they're often about um, social issues, poverty, climate, weather, it, it, and it helps them to develop aid programs and to inform, you know, government about. So it, it's quite an amazing way of, of 
kind of listening to the population and, and helping them accordingly. Um, so all those phone-ins aren't for nothing. They're not just a vent like uh, I often feel uh, feel that they are, certainly in the UK. Um, so it's kind of big data analysis of, of um, uh, you know, by, by people then look at it, obviously, and, and they they feed it into the um, the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals to, to help come up with projects. And uh, one of the students updated me on it today and said that it was used to in the COVID response. So it was used to help, you know, kind of find hotspots and find where aid was needed and, and, and education and information was needed. So that's my my current tech for good favorite. That is fantastic. And again, speaking to the ingenuity of the younger generation and using tech for good. I just love that. What issue do you most hope technology will help resolve in the future? I guess it's got to be climate change. Um, I nearly did a kind of Miss World world peace answer because, you know, doesn't everyone want that? But but I think... um, I think realistically we should be, you know, (laughs) more, most... um, I don't know if it's most more achievable, but uh, I think more should be being done to 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 use the technology we have to think about what is a massive issue. What inspires you, Tanya? Well, I was going to say I was thinking I've changed a little bit what my primary answer is while I've been on this conversation. My my go to answer is people who volunteer, and and this isn't just within we and AI is a volunteer organisation and. Every day I'm overwhelmed by the effort and passion and, and time and expertise people put in f- for nothing. Um, but, but it didn't just come from that. My son um, has been, my son had a brain injury when he was very young and uh, had all sorts of medical issues. And the number of volunteers that helped to raise money for, for treatment or just to give him, you know, some stuff to be fair, we, we you know, we didn't even think we needed but people were so desperate to help and volunteer and that changed my that was one of the biggest changes in my life is seeing how much a fellow human who doesn't know you is prepared to do for you just made me really really hope for the future of humanity in a way that I I hadn't before um so volunteers um are are one thing but while we've been talking um um, it's your third eye thing actually I was really thinking about (laughs) speaking out and people who speak out and and quite topical at the moment is the the people that are speaking out and getting a lot of flack for it there's there's women in the machine learning community um, who are speaking out about racial bias particularly in machine learning and as much as we've been on this conversation I've been just taking it as fact Um, you have the deniers like the climate change deniers who are are refusing to accept the issues and um, Timit Gebru is is speaking out there's lots on Twitter who who are really speaking out and getting quite a lot of the abuse that you, you know, and, and naysaying that you would expect on social media. And so I'm also saying what inspires me is, is the people such as yourself who who question and that squeaky wheel. So squeaky wheels. Yes, the squeaky wheels. Squeaky wheels are great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. What do you wish to learn more about? So I still want to learn a lot more about artificial intelligence. Um, so learn a bit but I'm not a technologist got a lot more as you've probably seen from my answers to to learn so that's a long-term thing I get distracted from that because I'm one of those people who just loves to learn new things every day I'm 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 ridiculous 
Um, I love TikTok. So at the moment, I, I want to learn the shuffle. I, I want to learn the shuffle dance. You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> every day I, I, I learn something completely useless. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I should say AI is is the big one. <laughs> TikTok is pretty fun. I'm gonna admit I don't do much of it, but you know, when my girls are home and we they teach me a dance, I feel very trendy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, uh, describe the future in one word. So this is an optimistic one word, uh, humane. And that's a bit of a play on words for me because one of our missions is, is to safeguard humans and humanity in, in the age of machines. So kind of human and, and humane, that's two, I know, but you just add an E. <laughs> All right, Tanya, last one. Fill in the blank, blank like a girl. Code like a girl. And I'm obviously very keen to get more women into... AI and machine learning. Um, I can't code, but there are a lot of amazing coders out there. Tanya, this has been wonderful today. You've given us so much to think about and really called out um, the, the need to for all of us to step up to the plate. So uh, that's important. And we appreciate you being the squeaky wheel uh, and helping us <laughs> spread the word today about AI and the need for ethics. If people want to get involved with we and AI and learn more about this subject, or get in touch with you, what are some social channels that they can find you and We and AI on? So we our website is weandai.org. So just W-E-A-N-D-A-I.org. Um, and it's the same for our Twitter, weandai.org. Um, and we're still at early stages, so we really want to be talking to everybody to, to help build our, our programs and, and help understand more about how to communicate with people from different backgrounds. We're UK focused at the moment. However, AI is a global issue. So we have people in the organization that, that, that advise us from all over the world. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, and we welcome listeners from across the world. Too. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Oh, yeah. This thank is a global conversation. Thank you once again, Tanya. You've been lovely. And um, thank you for just your presence and uh, such interesting and needed conversation. And we hope to keep in touch and uh, have you on the show uh, eventually. We'll invite you back so we can talk more about AI ethics. And <laughs> just because, as we said, we could go on and on. So, Oh, well, thank you. It's been an absolute um, pleasure. Um, and um, yeah, I'm very, very pleased to, to get the chance and yeah, look forward to it. Awesome. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women. <laughs>